Hi guys, thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 32 and my guest today is Olivia Bartley, who most of you will know as the wonderful musician Olympia. I interviewed Olympia just after she'd finished recording her second album with producer Burke Reed, who I feel like most of my guests have worked with, uh, which is awesome because I've known Burke for a super long time. I'm so happy he's doing so well. Um, So Olympia, what a gem. We discuss a lot of her songwriting processes, which is super interesting. I'm sure you'll like it. She's such a funny and introspective person. And I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, what she's come up with on this new album whenever that comes out. You know, most people will get these chats happening right before an album comes out and the artists are promoting the product, but not me, baby. (laughs) I just like to have a random chat. Uh, There's no forward thinking here. Well, not much anyway. I hope you don't mind. Um, The beautiful illustration of Olympia was done by Bella Crea. Bella does loads of soft and lovely illustrations and you can see more of her work on Instagram at almostmythology, one word. Uh, Remember, all illustrations can be seen on the at Hearsay podcast Instagram page or on the Hearsay Facebook page. Like and subscribe if you feel like it. Send me a message. Tell a friend. Send me recommendations. Always happy to hear from you. Uh, Here we go. Hearsay podcast number 32, Olympia. I'm so excited that um, that we're doing this podcast. Thank yeah. you so much for being on it. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. I've caught you in between busy periods. You've caught me when I'm vulnerable and oh, un- no. unpracticed of no. on the interview <laughs> and will give away all my trade secrets. No. No, that's great. You should you should be loving that. No, no I'm fine. terrible. I don't take advantage of any of that. I just like to have a conversation. Oh, well, now that you said <laughs> that, I'm definitely going to put some in there. so you've just finished recording your second album yep in london where did you go um i did go to london to get sick and um get a cold yep saw some snow and then i actually made the record in the grove studios in gosford on the new south wales did you so you worked with burke reed again i did yep Great. I feel like half the people I talk to work with Burke. Yeah, but I think you'll find that I'm his favourite. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, probably yeah. true. I mean, he's probably too busy to do this podcast, but he would definitely say that. <laughs> I'm going to ask him next time with I talk to him. heavy prompting. <laughs> yeah, right. So how long did you take to record? Um, that's a good question. It did go two months over, so I guess that's three months in total. I guess that's a long time. It is so that yeah. is that is nineteen sixties old time. Yeah. Um, why? Yeah. What why? were you doing? Good. <laughs> I don't know. It's going crazy. <laughs> I spent twelve months writing this record. I yeah. destroyed full time. Full that's time. All you did full time. Like wow. wake up eight. Um. I started to buy exercise gear on eBay. Yeah. So I'd go for a walk around the block in ridiculous 
it, you know, I don't know why that's, but that's part of it. I'm sorry. Yeah. And a lot of musicians live in my suburb and I was very worried that I'd run into them. But anyway, <laughs> and then nine o'clock, I'd be in the studio nine till six writing, worrying, you know, all that stuff. Writer's blocking. Yeah. yeah all of it, all that joyful stuff that comes with writing a new Eating album. Eating cannoli daily. Um, um, and then, uh, oh, see, I've already forgot my train of thought. And then when we went to the studio, we still were opening things up and trying things and there was still a sense of play and experimenting. So we would do sessions for about 14 hours of the day and then I would stay up all night and I would rewrite things or I would plug whatever we'd done, I'd mix down and then I would write uh, melodies or even lyrics back on top because I wanted the album to feel visceral and emotional and um, which is not my MO. Um, of course, I'm, I have feelings, but uh, I'm not a robot. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't like writing like that. The last album was a lot of like um, reactions to art and stories. Yes. And that wasn't successful, okay? Look, no one liked those songs. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone loved those songs. Did you make a conscious decision then to change from that kind of style of writing? Absolutely. No, I'm just kidding. That's not true. <laughs> I did look at the streaming numbers and they did not reflect <laughs> the personal numbers that I personally would have put against them, you know, had I manifested some sort of streaming site in my brain. Um, okay. No, I think uh, that's and, – and I when I started writing, it was – I'm sure everyone says this and I hate cliches, but it was really intimidating to follow that album up because yeah. I was really proud of it. Um, uh, and it was successful. Like it, was, um, it was reviewed favourably and it was awesome. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it was a bit of a beast to follow up. Um and but I think I had written a 10 point plan oh no it's like 10 points of what I wanted to achieve with the new work and um like and then I wrote a hypothesis and (laughs) did you really yes (laughs) and you're such a scientist and then I uh people my friends recommended that I didn't send it to the label and of course I did um (laughs) (laughs) And it was things like, uh, so self-talk was very analytical and, yeah, a lot of reactions to art and feeling overwhelmed. One song, you know, about Fiona Hall, who's an Australian artist who's incredible and and she's responding to the environment and I'm responding to her responding to the environment. And um, so there's a lot going on lyrically. Maybe each song... um, it was a bit of a Alan's mixed lolly bag, I think. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. What you didn't ask me to say negative <laughs> things about the album, so I'm not quite sure I'm going down this road. Um but what that's I, just that's just an artist nature. But what I, I wanted to do like that maybe that one is more uh, analytical or appealing to the mind. Cerebral, that's the word I'm looking for. Where I wanted to try and move into this space where it was visceral and it felt like um like you were just driving down the road, um, driving down a hill, you're going very fast and the windows are down and or like when you first heard the Walkman um, sing The Rat, like 
You know, remember yeah. that song? Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you remember the music? I do. I yeah. love that. <laughs> that I wanted that feeling. And even though I did spend 12 months thinking and overthinking and there's all these concepts, but I wanted to then sort of, I don't know, is that reverse engineering? I wanted it to still feel like they were stream of consciousness thoughts or they were emotional thoughts. Um, So that's why I did it like that. You're probably one of the artists that talks best about what your songs are about. Well, you certainly did with, with the last record. Um, you know, mostly if someone asks an artist, what is this song about? They're like, oh, I don't know, my feelings. But you were like, it's a reaction to art and history and you had a real inspiration that was tangible. Mm. Um, so I, I think it's really interesting to talk about having like a writing process that's more visceral and that's more emotional rather than that, that place to, to start from. Yeah. How did you come up with things to write about then? I didn't react for 12 months straight. Otherwise, I would be uh, – all my neurological pathways would be exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> um, Dopamine low. <laughs> <laughs> I think I heard a, uh, a podcast and this journalist, um, she was saying – she was giving advice to other podcast journalists, whatever they're called, and she said she wanted to make the audience levitate. And she was describing mm. in podcasts – here's some hints for you, actually – background noise and where characters break and laugh and there was these stories about girls splashing around in water and it made you feel like you were there and you know how incredible um radio and podcasting is it's um because it's triggering images in other people's brains but they're not seeing it so when you're firing up the imagination it's even more powerful um i guess uh books would be the same thing um um so I think that's that's how I got to this. I want to write the rat by Walkman. I want. Oh, fuck! I wish I read that song. Um, yeah, <laughs> I have uh, so many of those. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but it was sort of that feeling, and uh, this is going to sound really strange, but um, you know, when you're on stage and you the, the sort of peak part of the set where you are reaching. The, the sort of ironed edges of you, like you reach your full potential. I don't yeah. know. That sounds terrible. It doesn't he- happen every time. No, it doesn't happen. And it actually is very addictive and I can see how it's that's quite bad because then you crave and, you know, you beat yourself up if you don't get that high or reach. Um, I, I think I was also uh, – <laughs> I was on a flight <laughs> coming back from WA and see, I'm just trying to say it was a long flight and I was bored. And there was a gentleman in front of me. He was an AFL player, so he was very fit. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, like fit people, <laughs> this is <laughs> terrible. <laughs> they fill out the ironed edges of their physical frame. Yes. Um, and I thought sometimes when you are performing um, that y- you are trying to f- fill out that potential of who you are and it's it's um I always say the easiest thing you can do is perform a good set which is ridiculous but what I mean is everything's hard about music um so I guess that's that's a really inarticulate aspiration I have so you were you were thinking also about doing that mentally well 
I guess I just wanted to aspire to that feeling and, you know, like that, that sense of make the audience levitate. So faster songs, um, you could probably hear the grit of more organic instruments. Instead of synths, you can hear more guitars, uh, faster songs. So I've had to go to the gym to work out for that. And use of language that feels uh, stream of consciousness-y. Now yeah. that was so make the audience levitate was my first goal. This is this is January 2017. Actually, I started in Taiwan. I went to Taiwan to start the album. Um, right, because someone said the food was good there. I, it was okay. It is good there. It's it, okay. It was okay. Well, I think I, I was, um, I was really disciplined in writing, and I didn't have a lot of money, so I think it was kind of. I didn't do Taiwan very well. So it's not Taiwan's okay. fault, it's my fault. How are you writing? Uh, how, how was uh, your experience starting the Well, record? that was starting it. So what I did is just fill notebooks and I just went through life events and I just purged and then tried to analyse past relationships and, you know, just tried to pick the teeth, pick all those bones and see if anything came of it. Nothing mm. came of that. And then I wrote <laughs> a album where every song was about Donald Trump's Donald Trump, but I would use, um, like, each song was particularly about a past lover he'd had. So, for instance, one song was called <laughs> Miss Hawaiian Tropic. And um, – What cause happened I, to that album? Well, I guess I was so obsessed. I don't um, – you know, everyone was, but I was so obsessed yeah. with the election process and I could not believe he got in and I felt at first – Everyone was so stunned. I didn't hear many people say, what the fuck? Um, so I think that's what prompted me to do it. But it is it was utterly depressing. Oh, and yeah, I can imagine. So that was a good writing tool, but then I got over that. So <laughs> my aims, make the audience levitate. I was really yes. – um, I love – uh, Adam Curtis documentaries, who's a BBC documentary yep. maker. So I was thinking um, it felt like a kiss, uh, one of his documentaries. And what he does is he ties in current social events, music. So it felt like a kiss. He's talking about the song Carol King wrote. Uh, he hit me and it felt like a kiss. Yeah. And so he's tying in these really big social and cultural ideas, philosophy, and then he's also using music and incredible music. Like he's talking all about Phil Spector. Um, for instance, he mentions quickly in passing and the, the, the footage is amazing. He has incredible access to BBC archives and his work does polarise people because it's sort of art filmy. And he, his documentaries can go for three hours, so it's it's not everyone's cup of tea. But like how Phil Spector wanted to create the perfect pop song, yeah, he resented the genre. And I've then read he, a lot about that too. Yeah, and then you know he wrote River Deep, Mountain High with uh, two other songwriters. Um, he thought this was his ticket to ride. He got Tina Turner, and uh, Tina Turner wanted to leave her relationship with Ike. I'm, I'm summarising brutally and I'm really sorry to any, if, That's if, fine. if anyone <laughs> takes fine. umbrage. I, I think I, I should always have a fact, um, like a scrolling facts should be <laughs> rolling down across the screen wherever I am. <laughs> so it was so important for Tina Turner to have her own identity and be able to move out of that relationship. And, and the song came in at, 43 or 36 or it wasn't number one 
He locked his wife in the cupboard. He watched Citizen Kane for three days straight. Yeah, he just went absolutely mental. Tina Turner tried to kill herself. Yeah. Um, And he – and then, uh, you know, it's interesting. Ike is actually listed on the production credits now for that song and he was actually not even there. So – you know, you know, you think because I've always had a real problem with lyrics that are like, um, <laughs> "Be my baby," or like, like things that you hear all the time because they sound throwaway and meaningless. And uh, I've always really struggled with them. And but when you hear stories like that, you know, it's the same as "Be my baby," which is an incredible song. Those people are singing for their fucking lives. Absolutely, yeah. And those songs have stood the test of time. So there's something really in it and I um, have definitely not written Be My Baby but I have sort of looked at that as um, I've written a really personal record and I think looking at all of that sort of uh, feels Bechter catalogue even though he shouldn't come into it but looking at the artist he worked with <laughs> – yeah. um, it has allowed me to use language that I probably wouldn't have used before. You know, like I always used to joke in interviews that I would never say, be my baby, because I'd be like, well, be my equal and, yeah. you know, hang your towels <laughs> up. And like I, I I, would personally take umbrage with every line in that song. But I kind of chilled out a little bit. Do you use the word baby on your album? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> No, so there's still room for that. I say love a lot and uh, and that that was um, – I remember on the first record I was very like, no, no, stamping my foot like a little kid and um, <laughs> very protective of um, – I think I, I felt like I respected the audience's intellect. Like, you know, everyone can see through that stupid where this time I see it's really powerful way of – uh, reaching people and uh, so that's something so there's Adam Curtis um, the photographs of Alex Brager mm-hmm. uh, she does these really staged sort of film noir scenes where it's like wigs and 50s dressing and she'll do props so like there's cranes holding things up and houses burning um, but they're staged because I wanted to create and it, this may have been an, a reaction of when I'd finished self-talk and I was like, oh, wow, really proud of it, super proud of it. Um, but I can see that it is like a mixed bag of lollies. So this one I wanted to feel like an atmosphere that you step in from start to finish yeah. and a world. And so I wrote a bit differently. So I covered all the walls of my studio with inspiration, tick that. But then I kept writing in my diary, am I an artist? Am I an artist? Because you have to go out into the world and get groceries or stand in line at this. like Or exercise and all your new gear. Yes, that too. Where you're, I mean, I, <laughs> I didn't even like have beers with mates during those 12 months of writing. Oh, really? like I was always on and thinking, but those, um, it was stupid. I wouldn't recommend it. But those moments where I was away from the work, I worried that, um, I don't know, I guess um, always looking for things to worry about. So what I did then is I started to use diaries more, like visual diaries. Yeah. So then I would fill them 
with things I would usually put on my wall so that I was carrying around all these reference points, like especially visual references. So wherever I was, I could just open up and here's that world because I wanted to make sure that I was immersed in it and then whatever I had written was immersed in it so that, you know, hopefully that carries on and when you hear the album, I am presenting a world. Wow. So you like completely isolated yourself to make this record. Yes. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> Why did you decide to do that? That sounds so intense well, and so difficult. I think it it just naturally happened as in, um, yeah, it's probably not great, but uh, <laughs> I think uh, I had self-managed the first release uh, and that had definitely exhausted me and it ha- had taken a lot out. So it kind of felt fragmented and I was like, right now I'm writing the record. But I, I yeah. just, I don't like feeling like 98% the next day. So then, I, I don't know, it just became, I just. You need it to be like all consumed. Yeah, but um, it, yeah, it was a bit painful for everyone really. <laughs> now I can see it. Um, but I find I, that so interesting. Also, I was, a year is such a long time. Yes, yes, I know. I was just thinking all the time. And uh, like, I mean, I when I finished the record, I came back and I scanned all the pieces of paper that I used just during the recording process. And that was 170 documents. Wow. And I still haven't packed down my writing studio because I'm just waiting till there's a rental inspection because I just can't be bothered. I don't know what to do with it all. <laughs> so I did produce a lot. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't have a really good explanation for why I isolated myself. It just happened and I never – yeah, I didn't relax really. Wow. I'm relaxing now. You should see how much Netflix I've watched. <laughs> How do you feel about the album now? How do you feel about what what it ended up becoming? Oh, well, once it was down, I felt 100 kilos lighter, I guess, because I had been... All the exercising. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I had been so on and, you know, assessing every bit of information that came my way, whether it was emotional or social or music, just thinking, you know, could this feed the record? Is this part of the idea? Does this inform the world? So once the record was done, uh, I felt so happy. And that night I came back to Melbourne and I went to Sarah Blasco, had a small intimate opening, like a launch of her album. There was about 20 people there. And, uh, Melbourne people were saying to me, why are you so happy, sort of resentful? And I was thinking, wow, you know, I had not had a day off in two years and I had finished the record and I did not have a worry in the world. So Amazing. That would have been such a great feeling. But the worries are coming back, so don't worry. Don't worry. Of course. Of course. New worries. (laughs) New worries. Um, So so Alex Brager, anyway, so talking about this like creating a world, the way she creates these photographs and there's this sense of like they're a bit sort of you don't really know what's going on. And when we recorded, I would take Alex Brager photos and take them into the vocal booth. Yeah. And sing to them. That's lovely. Mm. Did you have any experiences like that on the last record? Because you obviously had like a lot of art around and you still had, you were reacting to images and and poetry and stuff. Yeah. I guess it was different 
because um, you know there's Jenny Halter in Tourist was um, in a dream I saw a way to survive and you were full of joy and that's what started yeah. Tourist I actually today I just um, was listening to Pretty Girls Make Graves uh, yeah. which you know in 2003 um, I was listening to and I don't know it just came up today and you know, there's some things, especially when you go through that formative part of your life, those artists are always so important to you. And Jenny Holzer for me is a visual artist. I can't mm. believe that, like, when people say they don't know her work, I'm a bit shocked because you should. She meant everything <laughs> to you. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, um, you know, I guess she's playing with words. Um, it's tricky. It's provocative. Um. Yeah, I uh, I thought it was pretty powerful, important. Where this time it's more, I wanted to capture. It was more like, so I think I was trying to interpret those images through song. Where this time I was kind of asking the images how they could inform me. So like the Alex Prager images, uh, I was thinking singing in vocal characters. And mm. looking at an image was about staying in character. Like, it might, like there's this beautiful photo of a yellow taxi in a rain and there's a woman inside. And, you know, just just trying to sustain, the, you know, what that might have been like to be inside the taxi during the rain, w- inside that yeah, wig, wow. and then staying in that vocal character. Um, That's lovely. Yeah. She sh- if Alex, if you're listening, I'm happy to take some of your million-dollar <laughs> photographs. <laughs> Um, I'm sure they will look much better than the ones I have printed out. <laughs> have you thought about playing these songs live? Oh, my God. Yes, I have thought. I have lost sleep. I do not know. They are beasts. Um, but uh, once I get over what must be agoraphobia, um, <laughs> it, it will be great. I, I, uh, it, it, it. But it does seem like a mountain and I'm sitting on the couch looking out the window yeah. at the mountain. Um, yeah, <laughs> just looking at Netflix. But, you know, I it's <laughs> yeah, it's my own fault because I have kind of, even though it was a long journey, I have achieved what I wanted to achieve. I just didn't realise that it would be so fast and um, I forgot that I'd have to play it. Yeah, I guess I think, yeah. I think everybody does that when they when they record especially if you're a solo artist and you're sort of playing all the beats and you're playing all the pieces it makes it much harder to then imagine you know how you're going to do it live and how you're going to get a three piece to play it or oh my god you know yeah how you're going to do it with your loop pedals I guess it'd be terrible if there were no surprises yeah if you were just like yep you're just pissing it in if recording's easy, I can't imagine what that's like. <laughs> I think it would be nice just to do a, an album with an acoustic guitar. Oh, I have thought about that. I don't even <laughs> like acoustic guitars, but I think <laughs> I'm going to buy one and do that. Yeah, that'll be your next record. <laughs> yeah. So did you use a lot of synth? I need to talk to you about yes. synthesizers. Let's do this. Did you use a lot of synths on the new record? Uh, I did. Yes, actually, no, I did. And um, because self-talk had a, a very interesting synth angle um, where we – I hadn't thought about this and um, 
I don't want to get anyone in trouble, but we had uh, access to really early synthesizers. We'd, um, through friends of friends of friends, met somebody who had an incredible collection. Great. And um, so it's funny because people have since told me um, like a little bit, um, uh, not in a supportive way, oh, you just made a synth album, which is a pretty loaded statement and I was thinking wow that's <laughs> well it was like because it's not a guitar album so therefore it doesn't you know match sure but you know don't worry about these people okay don't don't listen to them <laughs> um I had a rebuttal for them but the thing is uh when we made self-talk I actually didn't have much experience with synths and here I was I had got to play one of the early Jupiter 8s um amazing we had so beautiful oh my god it was incredible it's the gift that keeps on giving and even aesthetically those yes. are so aesthetically beautiful yes. they're so colorful yes oh yes love yeah. one um <laughs> but uh you know, I understand and you, you innately understand when you pick up a guitar, the strings and you play a string and you can feel the vibration through your body and you, you sort of, it, it makes sense. And then, you know, you think vocal cords, it's the same. Um, there's this vibration and da, 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 facts, 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 insert here. But with synths, <laughs> um, it's, it's, I don't, look, it's pretty mind-blowing to think that someone has sat down to create I, I, look, it just blows my mind, and this, this, as in like this, the circuitry. Yes, to, yes. Yeah. To, you know, and then it is pretty amazing. And then also to think of all the artists who've lost their minds trying to program since. Like yeah. I want to sound like a bird, <laughs> and it's like fuck. I think this sounds the same. And spending a whole day like manipulating circuits to get a sound. Like yeah. that's incredible. It is so exciting, and yeah. um, I love. Uh, LCD sound system. Yeah, me and too. I was listening to them yesterday, and I was thinking about how great the tones are that they're using, and the beat. You know, the beat always feels like it's it's ahead, like it's pushing you, it's driving. Yeah. Someone was like, "It's just house music." I don't know. No, I don't think it is. And also, have you seen them play live? Yes. They have so much gear on stage. It was they play so much stuff live, and they've got those massive modular synths on Ugh. stage, which is, you know, it's mind blowing how anyone can feel confident enough to play those live. Oh, I hadn't thought that. Yes. All right, I'll add that to my um, when I get earnest <laughs> about synths <laughs> as a rookie. But I, uh, I was actually thinking about that yesterday, and. Obviously, I don't like leaving the house, but I am so grateful I got to see LCD Sound System live. It was incredible. And it was so exciting to see, um, yeah, all those musicians on stage. It was yeah. so good. Um, so. I was lucky enough to be on the same Big Day Out tour as them. Oh. And I got to see them like however many times. I think I saw them six times. And every time it was really exciting. Is that the one where James Murphy DJed the after party? No, that I don't think he did any of the after parties that I went to. Yeah. Unless there were ones that I wasn't invited to. Oh, no. <laughs> which I, could be. I highly be doubt that. Um, <laughs> so anyway, back to Synths and back to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so this one... Uh, I wanted it to have the grain of guitar, like I wanted to have more guitars. Like, I mean, 
the way we work, sometimes the guitars sound like synths anyway or the synths sound like guitars. So it wasn't going to be a traditional rock record. Mm. But I did still go into meth. Tell people what meth is because I don't think many people will know. Does it, has, it stands for something. Melbourne. Melbourne Electronic. Electronic Super Sound. Studio. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically a place that houses um, very rare collectible instruments, like uh, electronic instruments. Yes. Um, for people to hire and use. I, I had heard, and this is probably needs some fact finessing that there was an exhibition at our powerhouse museum in Sydney. I can't remember whose it was, but it had a lot of the synths and it's either Robin Fox who started mess. And is it Byron Scully? Mm, not sure. So one of them had said to powerhouse, what are you going to do with all these synths afterwards? And they said, put them in storage. And they said, you can't do that because these instruments need to be, um, I think the technical term is flexed, like used. That is not the technical term. But you can't just put them <laughs> in storage. It will ruin them. Yeah, they need – the pots get crackly and you need, yes. to, you need to give them some love and care but and play them – playing them is the best thing you can do. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that's – Melbourne Electronic Sound Studio. Wonderful, yes. By the way. Very good. Um, <laughs> so they had – so I went in there and I used the Jupiter 8 um, – Juno, they have a Prophet 10, which is beautiful, amazing. Uh, I really enjoyed mm. the Enabler. Is yeah. it Rhodes? Rhodes Enabler? I think so, yeah. Um, because it has a sort of a piano feel, like weighted keys. Um, that was very strange. I've never played with one of those. It was, um, it was very enjoyable, very enjoyable. And so what I then did is 60 extra... Um, uh, what do you call it, stems and sent them to Burke while he was trying to mix this record that he was already struggling to. He was just like, what? I, no more, no more, no more. Um, um, but I think for me it's – I'm probably not good at finishing because I'm always – I have more ideas. And um, yeah. so that's why I have Burke, right? <laughs> yeah. Is he? Are you good at taking advice from Burke? I um I reckon I was better at it this time. Um mm. and that's the beauty of understanding the process more. Um so I feel like it's just music is so hard and you have to work with so many people who who everyone is well intentioned mostly. Um but you don't always agree, but I would yeah. would hands down like I do not have any reservations. I completely trust Burke. And we we don't always agree on ideas, but I always understand where he's coming from or I can see his point of view. For instance, um, it is an emotional record and all the demos I'd done these banshee vocals. Like, um, you that know. That sounds awesome. Like, I am upset. Like, that's what the vocal tone was saying. <laughs> if, you, if you were, I think that's how people analyze music. What is the vocal tone saying? She's upset. Um <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I and then sort of Burke and I sat back and he said, oh, I can see you're upset. Um, he's sort of like, I don't think that's where people's ears are at the moment. Yeah. And Okay. That's interesting. And because I think PJ Harvey does a little bit on Let England Shake. Yeah. That oh, in no. Your face. Actually, that is a big trick. Because I thought that and I think I was using that as a like, yeah, but what about this amazing record? And when we listen to it, they're actually tricky. They sound 
like she's blowing out the mic and it's very banshee like but it's actually a lot more pulled you think it in your head but when you listen to it it's a lot quieter than okay. I, than I remembered or I thought so it's kind mm. of some magic happens there that's a spectacular record anyway so we were more than we talked about um sort of leaning more towards like Lou Reed's Transformer that's a dark wow, that's very different yeah so that's a dark record and you know lyrically what Lou Reed's talking about is really complicated and complex you know how did they convey emotion without it being stereotypical and um so we looked at um yeah, that became a real reference. Yeah, right. I've, I find it when I was listening to your album again yesterday and I, it's such a beautiful record. I wonder if your um, new record is, is like this as well, but there's very delicate and it sounds like very thought out backing vocals that sometimes, you know, very layered and almost sound like Stereolab or then there's parts where it almost sounds a bit like Enya, like the... not in a bad way I love Enya no that's cool (laughs) you know with that like beautiful like breathy uh yes very layered harmonic backing vocal actually that's right because like Blue Light Disco we did so many pads of vocal like open mouth um drones that that night uh I nearly choked on my dinner because it it had oh no (laughs) (laughs) it was like eight hours of singing um, not words as well. It's uh, yeah. there was a lot of swelling that I hadn't anticipated. Um, <laughs> imagine dying during a record. Someone's probably done that. Yeah, probably. But everything terrible you can think of, someone's done. Yeah, it. that's true. That's good. It's very depressing. Um, but no. Firstly, thank you very much. Um, that's how I like to write. Is um, I love Juana Molina, who used to be on Domino. And for me, she's kind of why I got into vocal looping. Um, That's cool. I, but she does these sort of vocal soundscapes, I guess, because she's not singing in English as well. It all sounds like vocal percussion to me. Yeah. That's why I refuse to learn another language because it's so much more interesting <laughs> when I don't know what they're singing, like yeah. musically. Like, oh, well, this is great. She could be singing about going to the football or like yeah. people taking all taking the car parts. Shit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, so on, on self-talk, uh, we definitely indulged. That's how I write and I sort of sing a lot of harmonies uh, when I'm doing demos and stuff. Where this one... Um, it is quite different in that the first thing we decided to do was drive the gear. So um, we've driven the vocals. There's a lot of distorted tones on the album. Yep. And we talked about it a lot before we did it because it was sort of like you can't – there's no switch. You can just flick and undo this. It's like mm. if we're going to drive the gear, there's no there's no turning back. So then that was such a bold decision that then it was like, okay – we're not going to do anything. We're not going to inch towards anything. We're going to go straight there. So bold vocals um, worked, you know, one song I think I sang 30 hours of and every every time Holy we'd moly. sing it, then we'd put it in the bin, put it in the bin because each time we'd sing it, we'd work more on the melody. Like, oh, no, okay. when we get to that intersection, it should turn right or it should turn left. Or, But we didn't want to layer... We didn't want to use backing vocals in the same way. We wanted the melody to do a lot more. 
yeah. on its own. And then, you know, like Lou Reed's Transformer, the backing vocals are so interesting because David mm. Bowie. They are, yeah. And he was 21. That's depressing. That's so, so depressing. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> but the good news is uh, that was successfully, uh, uh, like that was commercially unsuccessful record for many years, if that makes anyone feel any better. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that we got there, but we just kept thinking that the emotion in that Lou Reed album is sometimes in the ridiculous backing vocals that are going, ooh, 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 do, do, do. Like they're weird and they're wonderful. Um, yeah. Where this one, we've worked more on the melody. Um, carrying more information but being really strong and just not hiding so that the, the vocal's quite forward. Um, lyrically, it's pretty clear. I've tried not to get to Olivia, you know, like I've uh, <laughs> I've really just tried to stick to what I wanted to do and, and what else? Because at first we That's were – That's really interesting. At first we were going to do this thing where I sang really hard on the mic – um, like who who does it? Um, but it felt like so. I came home and that was in July because I'd had a couple sessions with Burke and we were like, let's try this thing. Um, and then I did a lot of demos. But I felt when I listened back, it, I was just yelling, and I was thinking, Wow, God, this is gonna be unpleasurable. And Did it sound good to you though? No, it sounded fucking awful. Um, <laughs> but I was thinking, this is what we agreed and I've got to try it. And this must be just writer's block. But any, anyway, thankfully we threw that all in the bin and um, that was just another thing we tried. <laughs> hey, I wanted to talk to you about, because um, you and I have something in common where we play with other people and then also mm. have our solo project. So you play with Paul Dempsey from Something for Kate. How do you feel about the feeling of playing with him and playing his songs as opposed to the feeling of playing your songs and doing your own thing? Uh, well, I would actually much prefer to – and all I ever wanted to be was a backing vocalist in someone else's band. Yeah, right. Um, I don't know how I – I guess I'm thinking big stages because you'd need to pay the rent and I hadn't really thought that through. Yeah. So <laughs> I love it. I love having a job to do. I yeah. When Paul gave me his records to learn, he was like, just listen and learn. And I created two folders, like two binders, where I had scored every instrument because I couldn't quite figure out what was what. And I brought these to the first rehearsal and he still likes to tease me about it. Um, <laughs> and despite all the work and, – and, oh, my God, the lyrics because I didn't get all the lyrics right, but I was sort of like phonetically just – like maybe this is what he's saying, but I mean he's yeah. he's looks pretty. There's there's he's pretty verbose, isn't he? There's it? a lot going on there. I mean, you yeah. Know, I only went to a public school, so there's only so much <laughs> I could guess. Um, but he, you know, I was so wrong, and uh, <laughs> so it's been an incredible. I mean, I probably should put these in order, but I haven't thought about it. Um. It's such a privilege for someone that you admire and Paul is an incredible musician, an incredible artist and he's a lovely person. So that's quite a vote of confidence and he was like, step into my guitar solos. Wow. Which um, I thought, man, what have I done to convince him that that (laughs) is possible? Like, you know... (laughs) Uh, I had to watch YouTube clips of what hammering on and pulling off was. Like watching 13-year-old <laughs> boys, they had to teach me. 
I'm probably on some watch list now. Um, <laughs> um, so I love it. I really, really love it. And um, uh, it's n- there's something to be said for that, um, for not being responsible or not feeling anxious if there's no crowd early or or oh. you know like all those things that you worry about when you play your own show or yeah. you don't have to worry about the merch and you don't have to oh worry about getting home afterwards or anything oh. I that's the main thing not the main thing that's one of the things <laughs> definitely not the main thing one of the things I love um, I would add worrying about whether I've booked the flights to the right city um because I have I did make a couple of errors in 2016. Did you? Yes, book, booking the tour in the wrong direction. I um, know. <laughs> why are airlines so inflexible? I made a mistake, yeah. okay. Yes, I was calling last week, but that was something different. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I love it. And uh, I, I find something's happening and maybe it's this neuroplasticity that everyone keeps us you know, suggesting I read about, but I refuse to because I think I know what it's about. So I'm just going to go with that confidently. Sure. Um, that I was really stressed the first couple of runs we did with Paul because it's, um, you know, I go keys, then I have to switch synth engines and then it's percussion and then it's singing and then get to, then I have to pick up guitar and I have to make sure I'm on the right fucking pickup and pedals. Yeah. And, um, there's a lot to do. But then... Uh, then I would go do my tours, which were just crazy and chaotic and hemorrhaging money. And I'd come back and the more breaks I had with Paul's stuff, the more I was relaxed each time I came back, which shouldn't be the case because I was less prepared each time because I should have been practicing. So, <laughs> and then the more you relaxed you are, the more enjoyable the gig is. And I think the better you play. So by the time... We played the last gig, which was February at the zoo. I think I was really great. And I, you know, no awards were given, but I thought I probably <laughs> would have taken it out that night. <laughs> you gave yourself a personal award. I often ask Paul's engineer who was the best, um, but he has never answered. <laughs> I feel like we haven't really got to talk much about your formative years of um, learning your instrument and, you know, like vocally developing can you tell me about you know what first got you interested in music and what made you want to sing and play guitar and piano my parents well my mother had joined a pentecostal church that was quite small and we lived in sort of um uh we didn't live in a large city or anything i guess what i'm trying to say is that no one could really play an instrument there and um I'm not specifically sure what book of the Bible it is, but uh, essentially um, you have to play something about light, light under a bushel, under a tree or something. So it was kind of – I learnt to play music um, in that environment, like just so people could sing along. It, I was self-taught. Um, oh, actually, yeah, we asked for drums as kids, that's right, and our parents brought us a piano. It's the first Bastards. of first of many miscommunications <laughs> that I have experienced in my twenty two years of life. Excuse me, um, and uh, so, but I think it, what it did it gave me a sense of um, music was felt egalitarian to me. It didn't feel like a competition, so I didn't feel 
I didn't, I don't think I had a sense of ego about music. It was like, it was, every, you know, someone's got to sing, like someone's got to play and, you know, because we all need to sing and sort of closely in tune. Um, but singing uh, chorally gave me a sense of harmony and I loved Andrew Sisters, um, very eclectic taste. Uh, my dad is an incredible uh, Latin guitarist, um, but he oh, cool. he's taught himself how to play upside down by accident. So it's absolutely painful to try to learn off him (laughs) but what i have picked up is sergio mendes you know george benson um that they're great guitarists and i also listen to them yeah so were you listening to a lot of jazz and stuff growing up no look this is the thing it's we can't call it jazz and i had bought many cds that went in the bin um (laughs) it's a very specific genre of music that my father approved of you know oh, uh, he threw cds in the bin he well they disappeared um maybe they oh. were holding up uneven <laughs> tables uh, he he loved uh loves um 70s funk music so tower of power oh. uh who else is there mm-hmm. can't remember so what is hip yeah heard that a few million times in my childhood Ch- yeah. some <laughs> chicago albums um Oh, hang on. Who did – I don't want to do your dirty work. Steely Dan. Oh, um, yeah. Start with one of their more obscure hits. Uh, so when I would come <laughs> home with Dizzy Gillespie, because when you go to the local CD store, that's in the section, jazz. Sure. Wasn't interested. Um, no. What's wrong with Dizzy Gillespie? Oh, uh, I don't know. Too I, jazzy. You, you can't um, You can't move your feet to it. I'm not sure. Um <laughs> Uh, so that's kind of was my introduction to music and I did get a piano teacher at about age 10 and I would go to, it was just so fateful, like I was just setting me up for failure to go to those recitals because I was completely self-taught oh, yeah. and my mum made make these ridiculous asymmetrical taffeta dresses, <laughs> like I don't know, like uh, John Bernay Ramsey's sort of style. And you turn up and these kids are like black belt piano players. You know, they have yeah. gloves on, they have seat warmers. Holy crap. Gloves? Yeah. And I <laughs> Is didn't, that a thing? I, didn't, I don't even know if the composers I was learning are even real. Like I didn't get Bach <laughs> or Mozart. I had Buchmuller or I don't know. I, I think they were made yeah, up. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so uh, like most kids, I rebelled and threw it away and then taught myself guitar and I bought Melanie Safka's Candles in the Rain. I think I bought six copies of it. I just thought that was so amazing. And um, and um, that's kind of what got me into guitar. And Neil Young, um, wow. the soundtrack for Dead Man. So, like, oh, yeah. you know, keep up. There's um, I'm just panning weird music here. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I had a, a Martin acoustic and I just – I think when I heard Dead Man soundtrack, I just took it into the guitar shop and just swapped it for a Telecaster Thin Line. Oh, great. Um, which I still have, which is a good guitar. But I'm thinking that Martin Acoustic's probably worth a lot of money by now. Probably. But, you know. <laughs> probably. Uh, gear, it comes and goes. <laughs> I wonder how did your – so you say when you learnt music it was very egoless. Mm. How did your ego develop while you were progressing? What are you trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just interested in in how in people's egos. <laughs> I 
Um, because it was interesting when I was in uh, I was in I was in high school, and so I grew up in Wollongong, and there was this thing called Talent Development Project, and you got every school sort of selected someone and put them forward for auditions. And I was selected and I had to catch the train to Sydney every, once a month. And it was like in the basement, one of the, you know, the basement level. It was essentially Australian Idol before Australian Idol. And it wasn't televised. And it was in the basement of the Sydney Entertainment <laughs> Centre. And they had sort of CD grade celebrities. Uh, I can't think of anyone. Maybe Rhonda Birchmore was there one day and they would sit on a panel and judge you and give you feedback and you would get people would get culled every week and then eventually the winners um, became bands like Human Nature came out of this project. Really? Uh, High, High Five came out oh. of this project and people that sing the, um, the, 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 what's it called? National Anthem at Grand Finals. Yeah, so um, clearly I was a really good fit for that program. <laughs> and I'd go there with my acoustic guitar and one of the first songs I ever wrote was called Missing in Action. I was in Year 7 and it was about – I had written it in first person too, which was very clever, about how I went to um, the Vietnam War and I didn't come back because I had learnt that uh, a lot of uh, Americans got left behind. And wow, I, that's heavy. Yeah, so I really felt something, some connection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so serious for a first in action. And anyway, so I was singing songs <laughs> like that, where and the the celebrities. I stayed in the. Uh, is it a competition? It's a development project. I don't know. I Sounds stayed like a in competition. it. Yeah, for so long because they just did not know how to talk to me or react or like you know eventually they had to drop me because mm. I'd run out of protest songs. Um, <laughs> but I used to break out in this like hives on my neck. Oh, are they hives? It's a yeah, like like a rash. Yeah, and I actually think that was. Um, I was so nervous. Um, performance th- anxiety. That it, it, it killed any nerves. That So I don't oh. often feel nerves. I'd be more nervous oh, about public speaking or falling over in high heels to accept all the arias <laughs> that I'll get for this album. I'm <laughs> already thinking, could I do it in flats? Like, <laughs> I, love, but I love the things you're worrying about <laughs> these days. <laughs> but uh, I think that that, um, was sort of like, I don't know, trial by fire? I is this a thing? Um, so did that help? Anyway, you asked where did ego come into it? I'm not sure. But anyway, these all experiences happened and I just took them in my stride. And I don't know, maybe I was seeing music as work because I, I don't know. From a young age. Yeah, I'm not sure about that either. Um Maybe when you have to do interviews and you have to articulate ideas or stand up to budgets that are yucky. I, I don't know. But, yeah. I don't – I mean, I've, I don't know you that well, but the times that we have spent together, I don't think that you come across as having a large ego at all. But it's interesting to see you on stage – you wear these like amazing Ziggy Stardust sort of outfits <laughs> that um that you know definitely show like a confidence. I think I I think about it a lot as um hubris, like 
I hadn't thought of it as ego, but I think we're, it's essentially the same thing. And often I think it's taken me longer to get to goals that I've wanted to because I have tried to carry people on the journey or, mm. uh, you know, tried to take into consideration other people's feelings and which is what humans should do because we're all part of, of this course. community and um, yeah. and because God doesn't exist and, you know, just to fast forward on that. Um, but I do see other artists um, who, you know, and there aren't a lot that don't have that empathy and they definitely get to that place they want to go quicker. Yeah. Um, they have such self, such self-belief that it's unflinching and for me that would be really dangerous because – I don't think I always have the right answers and you can't ask everyone for their feedback because then it would be designed by committee and would be gross. Um, yeah, but I, th- I think having overconfidence is disgusting as well. I yeah. think that's really gross. Yeah, it can't be much fun to hang around. But I do admire... Um, I, I do see that, oh, fuck, that's how they got there quicker because they didn't listen to self-doubt. It's I, I think that's what Modafinil was supposed to do as well. I forgot about that. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I uh, I was thinking Modafinil's definitely going to be my drug of choice writing the record. <laughs> I forgot about that. Wow. Or beta blockers maybe. Yes. <laughs> Just at the arias so you don't trip. <laughs> oh, I had I had gastro at the last Arias. Did you? Yeah, oh, I was. Rough. I was on the. I was on anti nausea tablets that they give cancer patients. Oh it was, no! And this was so did much you make food. it through without any disasters? Uh, I sure did, but I felt like I was gripping on for dear life with every inch of my body. Oh, and did you um, worry about giving gastro to other people? I don't know. No. Must have been that <laughs> ego of mine. I'm just not worried about that at all. But it was funny because I was nominated in the category with Montaigne and when she accepted her speech, she talked a lot about going to the toilet. Oh, did she? Yeah. Oh, she, weird. Um, it, I think uh, she was quite nervous and she had a lot of ideas she wanted to cover. And um, <laughs> I, I can – I totally get that because I – Probably not making much sense tonight, but I was thinking, no, oh, great. man, she's even taken my material. <laughs> <laughs> I really need to poo right now. <laughs> yes, yeah, like I'm the one that is like, yeah. Hey, so I'm I'm going to ask my last question. Okay, okay. The question I ask everyone: um, Tell me about your strangest show experience or the strangest thing that's happened to you because you play music. Um, I. <laughs> it's a toughie I it was before i um played as olympia and i was just a normal person um but a family member had gone to a festival a, mm-hmm. a, a sound weight festival what we call that genre metal rock like yeah like hard rock I yes don't know. <laughs> so a family member had gone to a hard That's rock great. festival Yes, does sound gross. And I feel really gross saying hard rock. <laughs> <laughs> I resent as soon as someone says to me, what style of music do you play? I instantly resent that question because I'm going yeah. to have to use words I don't like. Yeah, I feel the same way. So I go for children's artists. I say it's children's music. 
Um, and apparently self-talk went okay with kids, so that plays. Oh, but, accurate. But, um, you know, rock, pop, oh, I just bristle. Don't like it. Yeah. I think I say girly synth pop and it makes me feel really bad. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, go on with your story. Um, They're at a hard rock festival. Yes, a family member was and um, – um, they met someone who was, uh, I don't know how it all happened. I, I assume that there were chemicals involved and there was a lot of, mm-hmm. um, euphoria and we are the world sort of sentiment going yeah. around and, mm-hmm. and, um, how, what I was told. And I think it was probably through the lens of drugs essentially, but I didn't realize that, that they were starting a band with Daniel Johns and they would like me to come audition for the band. Okay. So I drove to Newcastle to Daniel John's house, but it was not um, his house. He's probably not even in the country. It was someone who lived in the same city. Uh-huh. So maybe a 200-kilometre radius, and it was the granny flat of a house, you know. It's just like that story in a dark, dark room. There is a dark, dark box. Oh, no. And – um. Yeah, it was really awkward. I mean, you know, it was like really, really sweet people, but um, I think it's so, you know, and, and when I got there, they were sort of spraying links as sort of Glen 20 sort of. Oh, no. Yeah, which is, um, you know, it was a long time ago and we've all grown and up. And then what happened? <laughs> <laughs> what was the what happened so look it didn't th- it didn't get better okay it never got better it was just that um i had come with certain expectations and yeah. it was not that and then we all realized at the end that um uh, potentially prescription medicines had led us all astray <laughs> and i wasn't even there so i blame <laughs> i blame that festival did and you have to say like so where's uh Where's Daniel Johns? <laughs> um, I think I must have said something because then it was like, oh, I don't know. Has, has it, hey, have you seen Daniel recently? Oh, I think I saw him. I saw his mum at um, the supermarket a couple of weeks ago or saw him in the paper. Oh, no. Saw him on MySpace. Oh, um, <laughs> so it was quite – it was just awkward for everyone, really. Yeah. I love um, this story. I need more details. <laughs> I am so embarrassed by this story. I have never told anyone and I apologise. Really? I'm probably telling it terribly because a lot of me is saying I should not have told this because I feel bad for everyone involved. Um, oh, no. Everyone's lovely in the world. Everyone's lovely. Yeah. But um, uh, this particular family member who's beautiful and so supportive, um, since then I've had to explain that I now – sort of desaturate any comments or feedback coming from them or suggestions like thank you very much (laughs) fair enough i'm gonna tone that down and uh yes like you know when you get comments like um come to brazil and they'll say oh this person wants you to go to brazil why don't you do that you have to explain well okay that'll cost this amount of money and, you know, duh, 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 that's just one person yeah. that's going to come to the gig. I don't think that gig's going to break even. Yeah, yeah. Et cetera. They'd, people don't understand when, they, when they're not in the logistics of music. Yeah. But I, I, I'm so aware of that. And um, I – and then 
oh, so there's two angles I wanted to take with that comment. One is um, I'm really aware of it when I meet people. I try not to ask the obvious questions. Yeah. Like I meet a pilot. Try to not talk about airplanes or air crash investigations. Probably doesn't watch those. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I always think about how David Bowie was always so polite and so articulate to every stupid dumb question he got. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to do that. I think I'm a little bit more like, <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> That's a great note to end on. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing my podcast. I really appreciate you making the time. I really can't wait to hear the album and um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how you play it all live and I hope you don't worry too much about it. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Pleasure.